Paul's letter to the Colossians. This is the word of the Lord. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can be seated. If you are uh, in school, we do have sermon challenges for uh, kids. This is a great way to follow the sermon and to, to get even a little bit more out of it than maybe your parents will because we have some extra questions on the back to, uh, to stimulate you. But we also uh, will score that and you can uh, earn some prizes over, over the uh, semester. So I hope that kids will take advantage of that opportunity to, to learn how to listen to the sermon. We are in a sermon series. I'm sure you all know the name of it now, Jesus is Enough, and I'm sure you also know why it's called Jesus is Enough, but repetition is the most important part of teaching, uh, or, or, or maybe information, but you need both. Jesus is Enough is, is the message of the book of Colossians that Paul has written, and we have been stressing that we don't need anything else to come to God, to be forgiven, to be saved, to look forward to, to heaven, than faith in Jesus, because Jesus is enough. Paul has dismantled all of the competing ways that we can relate to God and said, all you need is Jesus, because Jesus is God made visible. God put upon the cross and suffering for your sins and risen again so that in him and in him alone and in him fully is life. As Paul moves into chapter 3, which we are in, he moves to the second part of what it means to say Jesus is enough. And that is, Jesus is enough to live a godly life. Knowing Jesus and understanding Jesus and being filled with the knowledge of Jesus and applying Jesus is enough to give him glory and to live a life that is well-pleasing. And so we have, in chapter 3, seen Paul talk about what it means to live out the good news of Jesus. In the first four verses of chapter 3, we, we saw that that starts with, a, renew, with a, a, a mind set on Christ. It starts with what we call regeneration, uh, a spiritual resurrection where your mind is no longer upon earthly things and defined by earthly things, but rather set upon Christ and things above, which is where you want to be, and the pattern of how you want to live. Last week, Paul takes that, that new mentality and he brings it straight to our war on sin. And he says that now that you have been saved, now that you've been forgiven, now that you've been given new life in the gospel, the right response of living that out is to have absolute no mercy on the sin in your life. That your motivation out of your affection, your love for Christ, your motivation out of your fear of God, and out of your motivation for the gratitude of your new life should make you relentless and merciless 
in fighting any sin, large or small, excusable or inexcusable in your life. Now Paul continues uh, right from where we left off, and he says to us today that living out the gospel means that we are to have integrity in Christ. It is today's text is focused on integrity, integrity in Christ. That is to say that we should be Christians not just by our our words and profession, but by a life that shows Christ, that is conformed to Christ. And this is not just something that is is a commandment. This is such a beautiful gift that Paul wants us to seize and take hold of. He is wanting us to reclaim the most precious thing that each and every one of us have lost. Before I tell you what that is, have you ever lost something precious to you? You ever had something wonderful and it it was taken or or lost or ruined? I remember when I was a little kid, I had a, a blanket that was basically a quilt made by my aunt, and it was the softest blanket, it was wonderful. It comforted me when I had nightmares. It was just, I had it everywhere. And then through a a misfortune, it got burned up. Got burned up and I was inconsolable. This precious blanket is gone. I was so inconsolable that my mom did what only mothers do. She tried to fix it. She cut off this small little corner and, and rebuilt just a scrap of the blanket. And gave that to me. And I cherished that little scrap. Some of you uh, have had your entire houses flooded. Seen all the damage and the the loss of things that that you can't replace. Some of you have seen the the loss of, of health. And once it's lost, you're like, oh, I wish. I just wish I had that back. I wish I could... Run, I wish I could feel good like I used to feel. Some of you maybe have have been debilitated in your body. I I was thinking of the story of of Christopher Reeves, you know, Superman. How he got paralyzed at, at the neck down, became a quadriplegic from riding horses. He is he has since passed away. But I remember that 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 decade where he was paralyzed. His singular desire, his singular vision was to to find the research, to find the medical uh, ability to, to reverse paralysis. He so desperately wanted his body back. That is what I mean when I'm asking you about precious things. And in this text, Paul reminds us of the most precious thing, more precious than Christopher Reeves' body. And that is the image of God. The image of God that was placed upon humanity at creation to esteem mankind as the masterpiece of God, as the reflector of God, as the the one that will show God's likeness 
across the world. And then, which was irreparably, horribly corrupted and disfigured when our first parents sinned. The image of God is the most precious thing that has been given to us. And every single one of us being born into sin have been born into a scrappy, diminished, stained, tarnished, cartoonish version of that image. It's not that we don't have that image at all, but the image with its glory is gone. And Paul is saying in this text, in the gospel, that image is renewed, it's restored, it's made beautiful again. It resumes its function of reflecting truly God. And so if you desire the most precious thing restored to you, renewed in you, Paul gives us the instructions right here. He calls us to walking in integrity with Christ. Our new life is to grow in the likeness of Christ, who is the visible image of the invisible God. Our new life is to grow in likeness. That is to say, it is to possess integrity with Christ. And so how do we know if we are walking in integrity, if we are demonstrating integrity in Christ? This text was going to demonstrate three gospel-born qualities that measure our integrity in Christ. Note, they are gospel-born. You can't fake this integrity. It is after you have received the gospel. And second, I want you to note that these are measures. Every single one of these we measure ourselves against, meaning we are not fully there, we have not fully arrived, yet they measure and call us to greater conformity. That is what we mean by integrity in Christ. What are these three gospel-born qualities? They are simply honesty, conformity, and unity. We're going to look at each of these in detail. Let's look at the first one, honesty. The first gospel-born quality that measures our integrity in Christ is honesty. Paul is very blunt, as he thankfully usually is. He says it like this, do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. Now, these words pick up just after what Paul concluded with what we uh, uh, looked at last week, which is in verse 8. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. He is still dealing with the sins of the mouth which reveal the depravity in the heart. There is Anger that motivates all of those uh, obscene talk and slander. And he is also saying, and do not lie to one another, that that same spirit, the old nature, is what motivates a lying spirit. So as we look at this idea of, of being honest, that, that integrity involves honesty, I want to look at it through two questions. 
What does it mean to not lie to one another? And why is lying such a big deal? Let's look at the first one. What does it mean to not lie to one another? Well, it means to be honest. As as an online dictionary states, honesty is truthfulness, sincerity, or frankness, and freedom from deceit or fraud. To not lie to one another is to be people who possess truthfulness, who forsake deceitfulness, who are people of honesty. As we think about what what do not lie means, that we we can't uh, not think about the Ten Commandments. I mean, this makes the top ten. Number nine, thou shall not bear false witness. Do not lie. Now, we can always take a reductive view of commandments, of prohibitions. There is a way for our heart to convince ourselves that we are not liars based on how we define these terms. That is how the Pharisees always came away feeling righteous, even though Jesus, when he shows them in the Sermon on the Mount, that it is a matter of the heart, that they are actually guilty. And so I think if we take a narrow definition of do not lie, we can probably skate through some manner of feeling honest. But I rely on an uh, older witness from the church, the Westminster Larger Catechism, to flesh out what do not lie means from the ninth commandment. And I want to read uh, the majority of it for us to consider and ponder ourselves next to the standard of honesty. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 144 says, The ninth commandment requires that we maintain and promote truthfulness in our dealings with each other and the good reputation of others as well as ourselves. We must come forward and stand up for the truth, speaking the truth and nothing but the truth from our hearts, sincerely, freely, clearly, and without equivocation in any and every circumstance whatsoever. Further, we must have a charitable regard for others, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good reputation, as well as regretting and putting the best light on their failings. We must freely acknowledge their talents and gifts, defending their innocence, readily receiving a good report about them, and reluctantly admitting a bad one. We should discourage gossips, flatterers, and slanderers. We should keep every lawful promise we make no matter what. And finally, we should do the best we can to focus our lives and thoughts on things that are true, noble, lovely, and admirable. That's the full definition according to the Westminster Confession, for the ninth commandment. That is the spirit of what Paul has for us when he says, do not lie to one another, to be people of honesty. Now, it would be 20 sermons to work through everything that the Westminster Confession brought out, so I want to just single on one particular form of dishonesty 
that I think applies to a great many people in the church today to us. And that is the dishonesty of flattery. The dishonesty of flattery. Another maybe more contemporary term would be artificiality. Artificiality. Listen to Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. The author of that proverb has put a lying tongue and a flattering mouth in parallel to say they are synonymous with one another. Now, flattery, we all know flattery. It's kissing you know what. It's uh, being extra rosy, extra uh, uh, complimentary, well beyond uh, believability. And certainly some of us practice flattery to others. We've seen the advantage of of kind of buttering people up with smooth and sweet words that we don't believe in our hearts when we say them. That's easy to identify, the flattery to others. But the flattery that is the one I really want to single out is the flattery we give ourselves. The flattery of ourselves. We all, I think, have this tendency to put on a face to answer reflexively, how are you doing? I'm fine. Things are great. It's all wonderful. Thanks for asking. We all have a tendency of of trying to project what we aren't. We tell stories that make ourselves the hero, that make ourselves wise, (laughs) that make ourselves right that make ourselves grieved because somebody did us wrong. We are always the hero in our stories. We wear clothes to make ourselves look as maximally beautiful and attractive and modern and hip as we can be. We surround ourselves with things to look like we we live in an estate and at a level that most likely we don't. We only share the makeup photos on Facebook the ones of the epic vacations. We hide all of the stuff that does not demonstrate us as awesome. And we bring that to church. We bring that to church. We wear a face. We don't just say to somebody, I'm hurt. Things are breaking down. I need help. When I was in seminary, I was told again and again by my preaching professor, you're always preaching to hurting people. I know there's a lot of hurt in this room. And the church ought to be the place where that hurt can get the medicine of love and understanding, and tenderness amongst us. But self-flattery denies all of that. We put on a face. Sometimes our face is thickest and most resolute at church because we're afraid of judgment or of gossip 
Self-flattery denies other people's ability to help you. And it excludes your ability to help others. Because do you, do you know what happens when a hurting person comes up to you and says, how are you doing? And you say, I'm fantastic. Everything's great. Oh, well, well I'm not. <laughs> but I'm okay too. There was a moment where perhaps the Spirit has brought two people that can minister to one another together and we take those conversations and we scuttle them because we have to keep our image. And we can't risk the vulnerability and the transparency of honesty. And so we are lying to one another through self-flattery. Hurting people are made to feel abnormal and unwelcome in a context where self-flattery reigns. And we should be a place that makes hurting people feel welcome and not abnormal. Because a church, if it is anything, is a hospital of people who know they are broken and hurting. And that's the goal. That's That's the place that we need to create. We need to deal with the temptation to be dishonest with self-flattery. So why is lying such a big deal? If you, if you haven't gotten some idea of the damage it can do to the people, I want to single out two things that makes lying a big deal. One, lying disintegrates our witness, and lying denies our new nature. Lying disintegrates our witness. Here's how. We are told by Paul to put off this and other such practices. Put it off like a filthy garment. Put it off like clothes that don't fit anymore or clothes that, 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 that you're done with. You've, you've had your diet. <laughs> you don't wear the fat clothes anymore, right? You, you get rid of them, and it's a wonderful celebration. <laughs> I haven't done it in a while, but I, I hope someday I will do that again. But you don't go back to those clothes. You don't wear those baggy clothes because they don't show who you are. They deny who you are. He says to put off that filthy garment. Rip it off. It doesn't belong to you anymore. It's your old self. You have a new self. And here's what Paul is really saying. Lying covers Christ's image of truth with falsehood with the filth of deceit and dishonesty. And that invites reproach. When people who say, I am a Christian, are guilty of lying and, and hypocrisy, they don't care, the, the world doesn't care about smearing you. They care about using that as an opportunity to smear Christ. Look at what a bunch of ridiculous uh, 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 people that, 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 that are, are supposedly supposed to be uh, witnesses of, of the, the God of truth, and all they do is spread lies. The atheist philosopher Nietzsche kind of puts a head on this. He says, show me you are redeemed, and I will believe in your Redeemer. Now, perhaps we want to you know, deny Nietzsche any, any audience, but the point is is sound. 
If we live a life of dishonesty, we are not witnessing to the Christ of truth. And it is very hard to get a witness, to get an opportunity to present the gospel once you are a hypocrite. But second, lying denies our new nature. Lying, Paul says, is one of the old practices belonging to the old self which we are to put off. He says, basically, that Christ's nature is truth. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, if we are putting on Christ, then we are to be putting on a nature of truth. We are to be like him. Whose nature is it to lie? Jesus tells us in John chapter 8, You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That is what Jesus calls the devil, the father of lies. When we are lying people, dishonest people, we are witnessing to not the father of heaven, but the father of lies. Lying and dishonesty must be part of our past. Or else, why do we think we are his? There's an old story. I don't know how. Um, I found it in a couple different versions of, of Thomas Aquinas as a young student. Uh, he, as you can imagine, was kind of a nerdy kid and not the most popular. And so some of his school friends in in, in a Catholic school, decided to play a prank on him. And they said, Aquinas, Aquinas, I don't know if they called him that but at that point, Tom, Tom. They said, there's a flying pig outside. Look out the window, there's a flying pig. And Thomas Aquinas got up excitedly. He went to the window to look to see this uh, crazy idea of a sight. And of course, there was nothing out there. And so all of the classmates began to snicker and laugh at him for falling for such a stupid joke. And his words back to them, I believe, define the integrity of Christ that comes through honesty. He said back to his students, I would rather believe that pigs could fly than that Christians would lie to me. That is the integrity of honesty. We ought to be that believable, that forthright. Honesty is essential to integrity in Christ, but this integrity of speech is the overflow of a deeper integrity, which we see in the second quality, which is conformity. When we talk about conformity, we are are talking about being conformed to a standard, to an essential measure. For about 100 years in France, the, uh, the um, standard meter measurement meter was kept, and they built or they made uh, 30 other meters off of the official meter and gave it to every major country in the world. And then they would come back after a certain amount of time and make sure that their meter that they are using as their official measurement matches up to the meter that was in France. This is how they kept everything standardized. 
The whole idea of conformity is to be uh, properly measuring yourself against the standard. The important thing for us to recognize as we talk about conformity, though, is this. We are all conforming to some standard. And all of us are conformists. None of us are true individuals. We all picked clothes that are reasonably in the same fashion group of, of everyone else. So we're all conforming. What are we conforming to is the question. Are we conforming to the world or are we conforming to Christ? You might think, well, why is it an either or? Why can't I live in the world and live for Christ? Well, you're, 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 you're trying a, a fool's errand. Everybody I have discovered down here uh, loves air conditioning, right? Everybody loves air conditioning. In fact, I would say air conditioning is an absolute need. We will take out a loan <laughs> to make sure that we get that air conditioning fixed as soon as possible. I've had conversations with people that, 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 that recognize how we just can't live without air conditioning, and we no longer have people that will work outside because it is so hot. We have become conditioned to a constant, comfortable 72 degrees, and it has made us soft to work outside. We won't do that anymore. The same happens with worldliness. There is such a thing as world conditioning. And that is a comfort that the world gives you that pulls you away from boldness, that pulls you away from purity and conviction and truth, from sacrifice and evangelism. It makes you comfortable so that you resist risking anything for your faith. You resist making your faith make you stick out. You resist taking risks in the name of your Savior that is uh, beyond what is culturally acceptable. That is world conditioning. We have to live in its bubble, in its comfort zone. Uh, my question is, you look at your life, are you struggling with world conditioning? I am. Are you conforming to Christ or are you conforming to comfort? My friends, for many of us, worldliness is winning. It's winning bad. And that should terrify us. There are many scriptures I could read and cite to you. I will stick with one. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, worldliness is an absolute competition for faithfulness. And if you love the world, you are being drained for the, of the love of God. And that it's actually me softening the verse because the verse doesn't give you a spectrum. It says it's one or the other. This is a, 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 a gracious warning to examine what are you being conformed to. Because as Paul wants us to recognize, the world is not our standard. Christ is. Look again at verse 10. Have, 
you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. The image of its creator. The new self is the, is the image of God restored. To be conformed to Christ is what we are to be conformed to. And to be conformed to Christ is true integrity. How are we conformed to him? What, what must we do to, to resist the world conditioning and, and pursue conformity to Christ, to the true image of God? Paul gives it to us right there in the words, being renewed in knowledge. Being renewed in knowledge. If you want to win the, the, the battle for who you are conforming to, Christ or the world, you must be committed to renewing yourself in knowledge of the true God. Paul says it in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, Conformed to the world or transformed by the renewal of your mind. This is the battle. This is the place. So what knowledge do we need to be renewed by? The very last words Jesus gave us in the gospel of Matthew is the commandment teaching them. All that I have commanded you. Which is a way of saying every word of God is part of the renewal of our knowledge. It is part of our being formed and conformed back into the image of God. The scriptures are the image of God written. Christ is the image of God in bodily form. And if we want to live and walk in this world demonstrating integrity with the image of God, we must press these scriptures into ourselves. That is where the mind is renewed. My friends, beloved, do you, do you want to know Christ? Do you, do you want to be fully pleasing to him? Do you want to reflect him? Do you want this precious image that was lost and that you had no chance of ever putting back on to shine anew through you? Then read the word. Listen to the word. Pray the word. Obey the word. Now when we hear the words renewing our mind, there is one way that we can twist this from actually changing our lives. We can see being renewed in knowledge is simply a description of getting our doctrine right. Renewed in knowledge has far more than just getting the right facts or the right thoughts in your head. Renewed in knowledge is that you are being made new. Your entire self is being changed by applying that knowledge. And so there are people who are full of God facts and live a life devoid of God-likeness. That is not being renewed in knowledge. Being renewed in knowledge is the knowledge making you conformed in the way you live and what you desire and what you want and what you do to Christ. 
So when we talk about honesty and conformity, these actually work together and flow into the chief quality of integrity in Christ, which is the third, and that is unity. Now, when we use the word integrity, the the fundamental meaning of integrity is is integer. An integer is simply a, a number. And so integrity in its most stale, literal definition, is oneness. Oneness. And oneness is the capstone of our integrity in Christ. Oneness together is what shows the world our integrity in Christ. When we do not know ourselves by flattery but by Christ, when we are not conformed by worldly divisions... We become one in Christ, as Paul says, who is all and in all. That is why Paul lists many worldly divisions that were present in his day. Verse 11 says, There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul lists these worldly divisions that, that, that kept people apart, that, that made people separate. And he says that our new self has overridden these entirely. Racial, cultural, class, and economic divisions are what are being listed here. Jews and Gentiles is racial. Barbarian and Scythian and Greek is cultural. Slave and non-slave And Scythian deal with class and economy. Paul is saying all of those are irrelevant. They they are not part of witnessing to Christ. In fact, what witnesses to Christ is the fact that despite all of those things that have held you in boxes and pushed you apart, you are brought into oneness with each other. What, What are all these divisions fundamentally? These divisions are things that we create to find some reason to feel better than someone. I'm different. I'm not that. I'm a little richer than him. I've got a little more education than that person. I'm more attractive than so-and-so. These are multipliers of self-justification. We use these worldly divisions to make ourselves insiders and the rest outsiders. Can I tell you what one of the most anti-gospel things is to say? It's this. I want to worship in a church with people like me. I want to worship in a church with people like me. Like? Like like how? What do you mean by like? Like? What, 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 what are you aiming for when you say you want people like you? Uh, we, we have plenty of divisions in color and culture and class and politics and worship style. And if what we mean by saying I want people that are like me really do s- sit in one of those categories or others, then I want you to know what we're doing. We are denying Christ alone. How? Because when you say, I want to worship with people like me, 
me becomes the object of worship. Me becomes the standard of community. Christ is secondary. No, my friends, Christ is the likeness in which we are all pursuing. The truth of the matter is, we are sinners saved by grace. Full stop. Being excited about the color of your skin or your economic status or your education or whatever means you haven't figured it out. You're just a filthy sinner. And you're all alike in that respect. But Christ bled for you and made you his own so that you wouldn't be two people but one. So that you would manifest unity. That you would declare the only thing that matters in this world is God's grace that saved me and made me brother and sister with you. This is the integrity of Christ displayed to the world. When we unite as one in worship, despite worldly divisions, the world has nothing left to do but be forced to ask, what brings you together? What, what brings all these misfits and strange people and differences together? What is it? And that's when we witness to the world in our community these words, Christ alone. That's the only thing that explains this group of people. We are here because of Christ alone. So a personal question for you to examine. Are we assembling in Christ alone? Are there other things, other me criteria that makes you worship? They must be repented of. Our ethic is given to us in Romans 15, 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You welcome all people as different from you as they can be who confess Christ, because Christ has welcomed you. And we are not here to make a church about me. It is a church for the glory of God, for the sake of Christ. Welcome one another. Let me conclude. The image of God has been given to us in the gospel and it is laid in front of us to enjoy its being renewed in us. What we never thought we could have, what we even forgot we had, we have been given again freely. And we are called to put on Christ. Live it out. Put on the gospel-born qualities of honesty, of conformity, of unity. Let us pursue that integrity in Christ. To encourage you, I want you to know that this, this happens slowly, but it happens certainly if we pursue integrity in Christ. As Paul uh, spoke to the Corinthians in chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, 
of the second letter, 2 Corinthians. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal weight of glory is what you are pursuing through integrity in Christ. Something so magnificent and weighty that all the treasures of the world would bounce off the scale. Pursue it. Crave it. Desire it. Put off the old self. Put on the new. Last, there may be people here who have never had the new self put on, have never had the gospel owned, have never put faith in it. Have you, not been, if, have you been made new? Have you experienced the wholeness of the lover of your soul, Christ, who died on the cross to take every wrong thing that you have ever done and pay for it to the uttermost, so that it is not even in the memory of God, and has risen again to declare that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, that all who put their faith in him will not be put to shame, but will stand before God as child, blessed and delighted by him. Have you accepted that gospel? Put your faith in the Lord Jesus and the new life is yours. Amen.